what I'm learning is there's no right or wrong way of how to get into the industry, how to approach the craft. It's all about the passion and dedication and motivation of the individual. Welcome to Spotlight. Spotlight is an opportunity for candid conversations with industry professionals, artists, teachers and students about all things performing arts. The Casper team will chat to practitioners about their process, career highlights, future ambitions and the role of the arts in their lives. Spotlight Season 2 Episode 4 of a series on Media Arts, Part 1. Media Arts involves creating representations of the world and telling stories through communication technologies, including film, the internet, mobile media and beyond. It connects audiences, purposes and ideas exploring concepts and viewpoints through creative use of materials and technologies. One of those people who is indeed using Media Arts to experiment and interpret communication practices is Ryan Couchy. Ryan Couchy is an editor and filmmaker based in Sydney. In 2014, he was nominated by the Australian Screen Editors for Best Editing in a Commercial for Steadfast Brisbane Raw. Ryan works primarily in reality television. His credits include SAS Australia, now airing on Channel 7, House Rules, My Kitchen Rules, The Rivals, The Great Australian Bake Off and Little Big Shots. A career highlight was assistant editing on a long-running soap opera, Home and Away. He's currently in the final stages of post-production on Riley, a short film written, produced and directed by beloved Home and Away alum, Bonnie Sveen. Ryan's most recent short film, Gollum, has just premiered at Knoxville Horror Film Fest in the US state of Tennessee. It will be having its Australian premiere at Monsterfest and has just been nominated the best film at the first annual Hellbound Horror Festival. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So, Ryan, tell us how your interest in media and filmmaking, how did it start? Um, well, we've, I've, I come from a very creative family, um, a family where both my sister and I we were encouraged by our parents to um, be creative, and that was in multiple mediums, through writing, through uh, drawing, we grew up watching a lot of films, uh, not only what was being released during our childhoods, but um, a lot of films that my parents grew up with. And um, they were um, born in the late 50s, so they were part of the television age. So they saw some of the, you know, the great classics of cinema on television packaged for the Sunday afternoon. So, you know, from like the age of eight, I was watching like, you know, classic horror films like King Kong, Briar Frankenstein. You know, I saw uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho at the age of eight. And I guess I've just always had a fascination in film and in, and in media. My sister and I would always play around with VHS cameras when we were kids. And I think it was not until final years of high school when I started thinking, what's next? What am I going to study? What career am I going to pursue? that I thought, oh, I'll give the, the film thing a try, and it's been with me since. The, uh, the role of media arts is indeed growing in school curriculums. What do you think schools should provide to assist students in this creative area? Well, you know, when I was studying uh, media arts production at university, uh, we had top-end 
cameras at our disposal. And that was like in the mid-2000s. Now, with the advent of phones and tablets, you know, there's the technology is so accessible and it's so user-friendly. So I think schools should have things like DSLRs at our disposals, but uh, also tablets, phones, uh, and in terms of teaching resources, teaching uh, students storyboarding, keeping their ideas simple, basic script writing, basic camera movement, how to block with your actors, and basic editing. Basic editing. Is there such a thing as basic editing? Do you feel that there are wider opportunities for schools and students and teachers um, who offer media arts once they leave school? There's multiple routes that students can pursue. I went to the University of Western Sydney and I studied media arts production, Bachelor of Communications. There's film courses at TAFE, uh, AFTERS, obviously an established institute for teaching film studies, but there's also weekend workshops, one-week workshops that children can do on their campus or online. Online, of course, is a is a beautiful resource for learning how to do it. These days, there's what I'm learning is there's no right or wrong way of how to get into the industry, how to approach the craft. It's all about the passion and dedication and motivation of the individual. And that's something that you have lots of, uh, as we've seen from uh, the number of microfilms that you've created. How would you describe the films that you that you typically create? As as you mentioned previously, I do operate within the horror and dark fantasy arenas. And I think just like any filmmaker who likes to make horror films today or way back from the birth of cinema, really, the best thing about horror is that it's making a comment on uh, current situations, um, social, political, economical, all that jazz, but through a very unique and weird lens. So all my microfilms to some degree have tackled uh, something, whether it be a current addiction in society, a cultural norm being subverted, all those sorts of things, but through the lens of you know a horror film or using uh, monsters and um, I guess students who are watching the very popular British anthology series Black Mirror or the revival of The Twilight Zone, it's basically that using horror, fantasy, science fiction to comment on society and culture. So what exactly is a microfilm and how do you go about creating one? So a microfilm, also known as a super short, technically is anything five minutes and under, which itself is a challenge. And how I go about making them, so I have a background in advertising in commercials and in online content, where you're given very strict uh, timeframes to work in. Well, timeframes to actually create the ad, but I mean uh, durations to work with. So doing commercials that are anywhere between 15 seconds to a minute. And that kind of informed my practice, if you will, in terms of just how many shots are necessary to effectively communicate the idea, how much you can get away within that small amount of time without feeling like you're overwhelming or bombarding the audience. It is, it is a craft. I've, I've, you know, some of my experiments have been incredibly simple in their execution. Others have been more experimental and have been an assault on the senses, if you will. But there's no really right or wrong way. But what I'm finding is I'm, as I'm developing the craft and making more and more and more is just simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. Sometimes a lot of my shorts are now 15 seconds long 
and I feel wow. fifteen seconds. I feel I feel if you can't get if you can't communicate the idea effectively within six to seven shots, the idea is too complex for fifteen seconds. So listening to you talk about your creation of a microfilm, initially some people may feel that making something short would be easier, but it doesn't seem to be that way. No, 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 no at all. I mean, it still requires the, the time to, to film it is um, considerably less than saying blocking a five-minute short film or working on a feature film on like a 30-day schedule. You know, the the making of it, the production side of it is um, obviously leaner, but it's a lot of still time in the pre-production, in planning, and it's a lot of time in post-production whittling it down, whittling it down, whittling it down to, to meet the time frame that it needs to be. So what kind of time frame are we actually talking about? Well... All microfilms aren't created equal, so some require certain special effects that would take a little while longer. Some are less ambitious, so, you know, you could probably cut it. I think you can cut one in a day and then maybe have another day to introduce things like sound design, uh, music. Sometimes I've worked with archival music, music that uh, is free to use or that I can purchase a licence for. Sometimes I've had the score actually written for specifically for the film, so that's a little while longer and there's that collaboration and correspondence that you have with the composer that you have to factor in. There's also colour grading and then, of course, there's just prepping it for file delivery. Where are you going to put it? Are you going to put it on online like Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or are you preparing it for a film festival? Because there are more and more film festivals these days that have... Uh, microfilm or super short categories. Do you think your work in editing reality TV has assisted you in your creation of your microfilms? Yes, because at the end of the day, it's it's still storytelling. So even though you know within you know my microfilms, I'm creating a fictional narrative. In reality, you're creating something that's true and still entertaining, but you still got to follow all those familiar beats. You still got to adhere to a structure because you can't have reality TV can't be loose. It can't be a fly on the wall kind of documentary. It needs to have a structure It needs people need to people at home need to be able to follow it. So you've almost got to manufacture it in a way that's easily digestible and entertaining. And that's kind of had repercussions for my work, making stuff that's digestible easy to understand within a short amount of time. And also fun to watch because I've watched them because they're very good. They're they're very fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) You've received a significant amount of nominations and awards for your microfilms. In fact, the latest, Gollum, is being released this week in Australia Mm -hmm. and it's been nominated already for a series of film festivals. What's been your favourite response to one of your microfilms? I think probably Cut Off, which was... uh, that one just went gangbusters and that was just a one-minute microfilm. Um, but that was the one where I got probably the most audience engagement and reaction. You know, naturally being an Australian filmmaker, I'm not privy to going to the US or to Canada to sit with audiences and see how uh, they react to the film. So I'm having to rely on going onto Google and finding reviews or breakdowns or summaries of the festivals that have been and hoping that there's there's some kind of a critique or whatever on um, my film. 
But Cutoff generated just, I can't just single one good response, but it just generated a lot of positive responses. And a lot of them were about basically how long it took, the duration of it. Actually, yeah, no, no, there probably was the, the best response that I got was from Hollywood uh, Horror Fest uh, based in LA, where um, one of the festival programmers also taught film studies. And he told me that he keeps on telling his students to keep everything short, sweet and to the point, and that he wants to actually share that particular film with his students to say what they can achieve oh, in such exciting. a short amount of time. Oh, that's, that's, that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. In a world of reality TV, something that you do have a great deal of experience editing reality, and I will put that in inverted commas, <laughs> how do you think we can go about teaching students to be media literate? How do they learn to decode media texts in 2020 and beyond, especially with something like reality TV? How do we teach students mm-hmm. to look at reality TV and go, this really isn't reality because it's been edited in a particular way? Well, I think what you what I would encourage the students if I had if I had a bunch of them in front of me is that there's factual entertainment and there's reality. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all manufactured to deliver a point, to um, to entertain, to tell a story. That's 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 a tough question. Naturally, there's all the the all the ethical concerns Indeed. that come with um, representation in the media. When does reality become, you know, just like a sensational news story? Do you find yourself hamstrung sometimes when you're when you're editing, or is it dictated? Not no, it's, dictated it's, is the wrong word. But when when you're editing, mm-hmm. you get a reel and you have to edit it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a final say in the editing, or has it been sort of told to you as to how they want it to look? No, um, there's usually the higher powers that have a say in the final product. You know, let's be honest. Reality TV is the dominant form of within the film, a TV industry. That's how people make a living. You know, I I thought the same thing. I thought it was like, oh, this is unethical. This is all fake and things like that. But to be quite honest, um, all the reality that I've worked in, in particular for the Seven Network, not a lot of it's manufactured. Manufactured. I mean, like it's very hard to fake something. Basically, the building blocks have got to be there. Of course, if there's tension between say two contestants on a show you can't fake stuff like that it's got to be there but you can dress it up you can embellish on that with music with sound design by taking reaction shots out of context sometimes to punctuate the drama i wouldn't say we're faking something we're just embellishing we're embellishing something that's already there well, there's an element of creativity is what I I guess I, how I would look at it. You're being creative but still keeping it true. Well, well sometimes, I mean, you have, you know, we've, we've had, I've had numerous cases where I've worked on programs where people have, people who have been on the show have spoken out and have said, um, I don't like how you've depicted me and uh, we're nothing like that, yada, yada, yada. Sometimes you feel like just saying to them, do you want us to bring you into the edit room and show the scene to you uncut so you can remember just how terrible a person you can be (laughs) (laughs) under pressure because, you know, it's, it's hard to fake things. That's true. Because that takes more time out of our day to make something. We don't have, we don't have the luxury of time to uh, make 
something that doesn't exist. So how fast is the turnaround time for you to, you know, if you're working sometimes, on a series? Sometimes three weeks. I mean, all the episodes are, are being created simultaneously throughout a series, um, be it uh, 12 to 22 episodes. I think most episodes, 44-minute um, episodes, are locked off within three weeks. Right. And within that three weeks, they have to – the structure's got to be found, the edit's got to be found, it's got to be musicked up, it's got to be sound designed, it's got to be mixed, it's got to have all the, the ticks and approvals of every person who's, who's an executive producer or a supervisor on the program or a creator on the program. So it's, it's, it's rapid, it's a fast-moving train. Describe a typical day in the editing studio for Ryan Couchy. Um, that's why I like editing so much because not one day is the same. It's not like, um, oh, well, this is going to happen today or got to do this all again tomorrow. Every day has its own unique challenges. I mean, the first, I think the only thing that remains the same every day is, you know, I have to have a coffee before diving in. It puts me in my best mood, puts me in my best state of mind. But I mean, like every, every episode, um, demands, different attention some some sometimes it just all falls into your lap sometimes all the material's not there so you have to go hunting for other bits to make it work and you know some days it's slim pickings some days it's like it's it's a gold mine and sometimes you have days where you're spoiled for um, material and it becomes a challenge about what you pick and what ends up in the final product and no doubt some very long days Ten hour plus days, sure. Yeah, which I think is the norm in this particular That's the industry. No, that is the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you most like to collaborate with? Oh, could this be anyone? Yeah, anyone. I in would. The world. Oh, if it's anyone in the world, two filmmakers that I would love love to be mentored by, mentored by, um, Guillermo del Toro, uh, who. Uh, recently a few years back won the Oscar for Best Director and Best Picture for The Shape of Water. Um, but also I'm becoming more and more and more and more of an admirer of um, Taika Waititi, who you know was also nominated just in the last year for Best Adapted Screenplay for Jojo Rabbit. And that was an amazing film too. Amazing film. <laughs> What's your creative process? <laughs> My creative process would probably be, you know, first I start with you know, nutting out the idea on, they can be abstract words, they can be bits of dialogue, and then eventually I'll find a structure within that. Then eventually they will, um, uh, because, you know, I'm very, you know, I'm very distinct about my vision and about how I like to set the camera. So obviously I storyboard a lot of what I film. I'm, I'm very big on collaboration I'm very big on, you know, I don't have this kind of omnipresent um, dictator-like say over the final product. I've got a fantastic uh, collaboration with all the actors that I work with. I feel that we create the characters together. I have a really good relationship with uh, my art directors and with people who I call upon to compose the music and sound design. And usually I'll say, this is what I want to do. But 
this is your domain, this is your line of work. If you feel there's a better way to punctuate this or if you have any ideas, I'm not wedded to anything. I think that's with any creative process, you've just got to be open-minded. You've got to be open to all kinds of possibilities and you've got to be open to all suggestions. It also sounds like there's a, a significant amount of trust. Oh, yes. You know, without trust you know, within your creative group, it kind of doesn't go as far as it could possibly go. Well, it was um, John Huston, you know, the legendary uh, director of um, the Maltese Falcon. One of his quotes, which I really take to heart, which was, you know, I, re- I relieve myself from the rigors of directing by casting the film correctly. And that, you know, obviously he was probably talking about casting actors. I mean, he worked with Humphrey Bogart on several movies, so that's casting a film correctly. But for me also, it's like it's casting your crew correctly. And I've worked with my sound designer now on three films, composer on four films, art director on multiple projects. And it is, it is trust and it's, it's living in the same um, imaginary neighbourhood or sandbox, if you will. What do you think has been the best advice you've been given? Ooh, best advice I've been given. Go with your gut. That's not to say that that's an opportunity for you to be bullheaded or pigheaded about uh, the product, but uh, it's it's purely from an emotional place. Yeah, go with your gut. Keep it short. Keep it simple, which naturally I took to heart when I made microfilms. <laughs> very much so. Um, I took that very literally. Find the truth in the material. Find the truth in the story you're telling because then people will resonate with it. It won't feel manufactured. It won't feel like it's just come from an assembly line and it's just white noise. So what are some films that have inspired you? Um, that's, a, that's a good question, the films that inspire, because sometimes they're not necessarily your favourite films. Some, they're the films that you've seen at the right time in your life that inspire your practice. Films that have definitely inspired me, well, you know, so I mentioned Guillermo del Toro recently, so I remember seeing uh, his film Pan's Labyrinth, when it first came out, I was I was 16 or 17. I was just kind of finishing high school, getting, kind of getting very serious about filmmaking. So uh, that was kind of like that, that kind of informed my style. You know, I grew up with um, Star Wars, with Lord of the Rings, um, which, you know, the making of those films are just as interesting as the narratives they present. Uh, classic monster movies like King, the original King Kong, and which you know inspired this love for fantasy, for uh, stop motion animation. They're all types, but probably they would fall under that kind of fantasy escapist genre, if you will. What's next for you? So at the moment, I'm probably looking for my next paid gig. <laughs> I just I just wrapped up on, as you mentioned previously, um, uh, Celebrity SAS. Uh, which is currently on Channel 7, plug. I'm currently in development and in writing on um, my next microfilm, uh, my next short film, my latest 15-second short film, Nikki, which has just been accepted into the 15-second horror film challenge, which, I'll, which I do every year, premiering on, on Halloween. So for a good month, I'll be seeing how people engage with that, how people react with it, and it will be a perfect opportunity to see what my other peers in the horror filmmaking community are creating and what are keeping them up at night and <laughs> what's, what's, what's terrifying them at the moment about society. Ryan, it's been a great pleasure discussing the importance of interpreting and responding 
our world through that creative lens and through media arts. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you.